FASWA is a podcast about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit saswhat.com. This is Saswa, a podcast about Bigfoot. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Breedlove. I'm joined tonight by my pal, Mark Matsky. Greetings from Northeast Ohio, where four out of five cryptozoologists listen to Sasswat um, on Wadsworth Community Radio. <laughs> the, every cryptozoologist in Ohio lives in Wadsworth, actually. <laughs> yeah. That's weird that way. It is. It's uh they call it something the, was in the water. Yeah, they call it crypto the crypto hub of Ohio. <laughs> Wadsworth. Wads weird. Yeah. Wads weird. Whoa. <laughs> <clears throat> I think we just came up with a new name for our show. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Um so this week we are doing a themed episode. It's been a couple weeks, three weeks or so since we did something themed. And um and I'll just say it up front, like what, what inspired this was this post on Mysterious Universe about the Enfield horror case, which I'm not familiar with this at all. And I mean, I, I honestly, is it in, which which Coleman book is this in? Mysterious America? Yes. I, I'm assuming that's what it is. I, I, it seemed, un, uh, I wasn't that familiar with it either myself. Okay. I was, I was going through it today and... Uh, I couldn't find it, but I didn't go very far. I got uh, distracted by the phantom kangaroos or whatever it's, oh, yeah. whatever it's called, um, which I, I almost was going to kind of focus on that for my part <laughs> of the show because, and, and Coleman talks a little about it in the uh, recording you're going to hear. Oops, I just, spoilers for later in the show. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, there's these phantom kangaroos and he kind of refers to that as as ape like possibly related to the ape cases, the phantom, is it phantoms? I don't know what he's referring to these things as, phantom apes. What, the the phantom kangaroos? Is sure. That the thing? Phantom, yeah. phantom kangaroos, but, what but do then you think of, mystery what do you think apes. Think of the That's picture in there. Because the, um, I remember as a little kid reading Mysterious America, and the, the picture of the phantom kangaroo really kind of creeped me out. Because it seemed more distinct. Than, I, didn't, I didn't see it. Oh, okay. So I was I was kind of going through real quick, and I never saw it. Um, okay. But the we've talked about phantom kangaroos on the show because if I remember right, isn't there something from Ohio too? A phantom kangaroo? Yes. Yeah, there is. Um, just about any mystery like phantom animal, Ohio has one case of at least. Um, I think the phantom kangaroos referenced in Mysterious America are either. Illinois or Wisconsin, where the the big flaps uh, have been sighted. What I saw was Indiana, 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 okay. Indiana, and Illinois were yeah sighted. Which you'll hear. Um, oh uh, well, I'll go ahead and give it away. We have we have Lauren actually Lauren Coleman, uh, author of Mysterious America and Bigfoot, uh, the true story of apes in America, and about a billion other books. We actually have him on the show for a, a short phone call. So the the audio quality isn't great because it was literally just spontaneous um, 
we, we just happened to talk in the middle of the day and I, my mind was on this Enfield case. So we talked about that. Um, and I recorded a little bit of that conversation. So that's going to take up probably, uh, a third of the show. So you'll hear that here in a little, when we get to the Enfield case. Um, but really cool, uh, hearing him talk about this stuff, but something he's going to talk about. And I don't know, <clears throat> you know, in, in like all your bizarre cases that you're going to bring up. Uh, but, I, I was fascinated by, and I've heard him talk about this, but I'm fascinated by this idea of like multiple types of these cryptid kind of primates. Um, so he's he he goes in depth a little bit on that in his, in this talk, uh, and I actually was going to try to focus on those devil some of those devil monkey cases, mm-hmm. but I did not. There I left it out. I, I there's actually apparently from what I could find online from from the little bit of research I could do was that the the there's there's actually a place I think it's like Dunkirk Ohio with a devil monkey case and it seems to be online on like creature wiki and all these like cryptid wikis and stuff uh, it re- it's referenced a lot but I can't find any information on it. Hmm. I don't know if you know the, anything the one, about that. The one devil monkey from Ohio and we've. We've discussed the case on the show. Yeah, is uh, down by Wayne National Forest. That's the only one that I'm familiar with. Well, that might be it. Off the top, that that yeah. could be it. All right. So so anyway, the theme of the show is bizarre uh, Bigfoot cases. Although in the in the case of the uh, Enfield horror, uh, you'll hear Coleman's uh, theories on that one or opinions on that one, and it's not necessarily that it was a Bigfoot. So, and that kind of gets us into uh, a territory we've talked about a few times on the show, which is the multiple types of primates and mystery primates in the country. And, uh, of course, I'm skeptical of that, but what do I know? Um, so let's talk, let's let's get into the Enfield case, since if, if you want to, so we can pull up Lauren's uh, input on this. But like I said, I, I found this case because of the Mysterious Universe uh, post, and I had never seen... Uh, the name the, I think what drew me to it was the name the Enfield Horror. I thought what a cool mm-hmm. name! <laughs> what a cool name! Yeah, because yeah. you know it's not like the beast or you know monster or creature. It's horror. Um, of course, uh, we'll find out that Coleman does not like that name. But um, <laughs> anyway, the case revolves around this uh, this monstrosity that was seen. I I love the name that Coleman actually gave to it in the article he wrote about it and I don't know if I can find it. It's in this it's in this mysterious universe article, but um it, it his original article about it ran in some magazine and he oh I found it called oh it was in Fate magazine and it was entitled Swamp Slobs Invade Illinois. Uh, which is an amazing Amazing mm-hmm. t- uh, title. So anyway, the story uh, started in uh, Enfield, Illinois, back in 1973. Um, and a boy named Greg Garrett was out playing in the backyard of his rural home as his parents watched TV inside. Uh, basically, as he's out, out there playing, a creature or a monster approached him, and uh, which is a pretty typical, you know, reminded me automatically of reading this, I thought of the Momo case, because you have a similar sort of beginning with kids outside and, and a creature mm-hmm. in the woods. Um, so this kid sees this monstrosity uh, come out of the woods, and, and the article refers to it as a misshapen beast um, that had emerged from the darkness. Um, so so the way he described this thing is really bizarre, because it was um, a, around five feet tall, three legs, 
and uh, short, stumpy arms. Three legs is really a bizarre kind of description. Um, He mentioned it had taloned hands and gray, slime-covered skin and then large red eyes, which we hear constantly. Um, One of the weird things about this is as it came out, it it actually approached him and and stomped on his feet and tore his shoes with with these clawed feet uh, in the process. And when he retreated inside the house, that was his feet were kind of ripped up. So the police are called. Uh, police police arrive and uh, uh, couldn't find any trace of the creature. But half hour later, uh, creature makes another appearance in the yard next to the Garrett's. Uh, the Garrett being the the family that had their initial encounter with this thing. Um, it appears in the yard next to them. Uh, their neighbor Henry McDaniel has a sighting. Um, and, and this is kind of when things get creepy. Um, they see it outside, if I'm not mistaken. Um, or no, no, wait. Okay, it was the odd scratching. Okay, so they hear this odd scratching noise at the door. And uh, when he goes and opens the door, he finds this bizarre red-eyed creature just hanging out. So <laughs> so he has a run-in with his... Scratching big... initials in the door. Right. Is that what he was doing? Right. It's hard to say. <laughs> Um, he thought it was a dog. And when he opens the door, there's this bizarre monstrosity there. Um, so he calls the police as well. Um, he retrieved a pistol, was going to take it out, you know, to defend his home or whatever. And, and supposedly the creature stayed at the front door, scratching and hissing, uh, like a wildcat as the article referred to it. And a lot, obviously a lot of this, now my dogs are starting to fight under my desk. Um, (laughs) Obviously, the mention of the creature, I think, is yeah, sending them into uh, hysterics. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so the the creature. Anyway, basically, what happens is the, the the monster starts being sighted all around town. Kind of a typical case. But but what's intriguing about this one is that the the descriptions change from this monstrosity, this three legged monstrosity, into like a five foot tall ape type creature. Um. And so that's what the the reports sort of morph into. Um, in fact, I think Coleman said, I think he says in, in, when you hear him in a minute, that the creature was um, only reportedly reported as having this third leg by the boy, right? Am I mm-hmm. wrong? Yeah. I think so. And what he thinks it was was a tail. So let's uh, yeah. let's go ahead and play that that recording and let Coleman speak about this, and then we'll come back and comment um, on all of this. Well, hey, I, right. I wanted to bug you about this uh, this Enfield horror thing because I was completely unaware of it, despite the fact I've read your book and I know it's in there. So I'm obviously going to have to go back and take a look at that again. But. Um, I wanted to ask you about it because <clears throat> I was curious because it said you actually investigated the case. Um, oh, yeah, I was, uh, I think I'm the one that brought it into Fortiana by being the first one on the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, yeah, I can I can run through that. I mean, uh, I can tell you the details or we could record it. So Yeah, um, yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, I'm actually, I'm actually do you, recording do you right have, now, so. Oh, okay, well, uh, so I, I mean, I recall what occurred was, uh, I, that was April 25th, 1973, was when the case started coming to the fore, and it was in the local little newspapers down there. 
I was actually going to school at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. Uh, I was an anthropology student. I'd already been interested in strange creature reports since 1960, so I'd already been investigating for 13 years by then. And so even though I was at the university, I um, I um, would go out and investigate all the time. And, uh, you know, and so this was a case that I saw in the newspapers, and then I was gone, contacted by uh, Rich Crow, who was an investigator. He was actually a ghost hunter in the Chicago area, and he would um, he would go and do different investigations, mostly of ghosts. But he wanted to go uh, and out and talk to people about this, and he knew I was in the area and I was investigating it long distance. He drove down with a friend of his from Chicago, and we actually went out there. Before that, though, I had actually interviewed on the phone and recorded that, and I have a very old tape someplace of a news reporter over in Indiana named Rick Rainbow. I mean, besides having a wonderful name, Rick yeah. Rainbow. Yeah. He, uh, he also would go around with his equipment, and he had this amazing recording where he had been tracking down the infield creature, which had been really reported as a three-legged um, beast that jumped around, almost like a phantom kangaroo that I had been investigating, or some kind of ape-like creature that must have had a tail or something. But he came across it in the barn, and there was some people with guns there. So he's got this amazing recording of shotgun shells being blasted off and the creature screeching uh, in the distance, you know, the distance inside a barn. And so he played that on the show, but he also played it for me, and I was able to record it. And it's it's just amazing because here we have actual creature sighting where he was able at least audio, which being a radio person, that's all he thought about. Mm-hmm. He really didn't think of pictures, which is too bad. Yeah. So I, I had all that background. I, I'd already been talking to people in the media about it. I was trying to track down some of the eyewitnesses. The major eyewitness is a guy named Henry McDaniel, and he talked about how the creature came up to his very old air conditioner on his home and scratched at it and tried to attack it, and then he saw it hopping down the railroad tracks. So when Rich and I and his friend went down there, we actually was, Henry McDaniel wasn't around, and his family wasn't around, but there was another kid that did a lot of the reports. I I can't remember his exact name, but I, for some reason I keep thinking Tim, but and this kid had been attacked by the creature, and the thing that always came out in the reports afterwards was a detail that I talked to him about, which was that the creature actually scratched and tore up his tennis shoes. So it got that close to him. It didn't really go for his body, but it really went for his tennis shoes. And and so we interviewed that kid. What's um, that, that was Garrett? Is that? Maybe that was Jared. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it says what I read here said that later he retracted his story. 
he retracted the story? That's what it. Well, what, he was. I'm reading he it. was. A, he was young. He was a teenager. I mean, mm-hmm. he was a young kid. Uh, maybe he wasn't even senior in truth by then. And I could see him. Uh, you know, he talked to so many reporters. By the end, I can imagine that he felt uncomfortable with yeah. being so out there. Uh, but certainly. Um, when we interviewed him, he was very sincere and not at all trying to get publicity. And we really had to, you know, be very careful. And his, his parents were nearby and all of that. But the other thing that I don't know, sometimes it came out in the reports, but um, certainly for me and for Rich, uh, what really convinced us that something weird was happening around there is we went out in a a plowed field near there, just looking for signs and things, and heard the most ungodly uh, screech from the the tree line really near there. And uh, it certainly sounded... And I was very aware of, of course, all of the animals in Illinois, and I camped, and I went into the woods quite a bit, and so I knew what was going on and had never heard anything like that. It wasn't like the screech of an owl or the screech of any kind of hawk or anything like that. It was uh, definitely something that seemed very much on the ground and very much uh, uh, unlike uh, any animal I'd heard, but certainly I could see that even if somebody heard that there locally, they could make a monster into just the screech. Yeah. Yeah. There's like this weird thing that happens here where the initial reports of this thing are like uh, something I've never heard of, which is like this three-legged or three-armed or something kind of monstrosity. But then they kind of morph, it seems like, from what I'm reading, where it becomes more of like people start seeing an ape-like creature. So, I mean, do you think the two were connected or was it just a case where the first kid was so scared that his description, although his description kind of matches what the neighbor sees, so... Yeah, I really felt that the, the three-legged business was almost like somebody had seen some kind of primate that was resting on one of its, you know, either the, the arm or or whatever. But the whole overlap between that creature and the devil monkey reports, the the, the giant monkey reports for the tail, and then the phantom kangaroos that really populated... Illinois at that time. I mean, are the phantom kangaroos really primates? Are they really uh, small apes that just kind of people imagine there was a tail? Was it a, a big monkey that had a tail that was coming down? It kind of all merged and morphed back and forth, but I never really got the feeling that it was anything more than somewhat a misidentification of some kind of ape-like creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that um, certainly... You know, the um, people would take, I mean, I saw where the, and actually there's some archival photographs that I took of of the air conditioner, the railroad track, they were all interconnected. Uh, the, the whole landscape of it was very run-down houses, and that house with the um, air conditioner was right next to the railroad track. So, you know, people would show me, this is where it, tried to get into the house through the air conditioner, and then it hopped down the railroad tracks. And so I I just assumed it was all the same creature, just to... Even Rick Rainbow's report 
talked about an ape-like creature that was in the barn, but it jumped very high. It had a leap to it that really was extraordinary to him, who had no biological background. He's just a reporter telling me his uh, his remembrance of it. Was this and, like uh, was this pretty common though for for you where? Uh, physical descriptions because someone said something to me the other day that I thought made a lot of sense and I've heard it before but I guess it hadn't been put in this way but this guy said um, and this isn't anyone that's into Bigfoot we were just talking uh, he's actually really skeptical and he said to me um, one of the things that made him makes him question flap reports like Bigfoot flap reports or whatever I guess that would be a flap right whatever you would call that yeah, yeah. Um, he said that what what makes him question those is when people's description actually line up perfectly, like everyone's describing the exact same thing. Because he said when when six people witness a car crash, none of them uh, typically give the exact same details. They're always telling like kind of different stories. And he said um, it actually makes more sense to him when people are telling. Bigfoot reports, you know, and they might occur in the same area. And you have things like this where there's like an anomaly report where someone's talking about like three arms or whatever. And I mean, do you have a lot of cases where it starts out as one thing or becomes something else? Or is it typically just like a unanimous kind of report? Well, that's a very complex question that I've thought about a lot. And I've written up a lot about that. So let me just try to break it down in the parts. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, I go into an area and I'm like a lightning rod for reports. I mean, back in the days before the internet, before even there was a lot of overlapping news stories where people would share them, uh, the way I would investigate and other Fordians and other cryptozoologists, we would get individual newspaper accounts from a variety of newspapers. Uh, and each one of those stories was slightly different. So you'd hear something about an ape-like creature. You'd hear something about a creature that was jumping around, something that had a big head, something that had a lot of fur on its head. So like in the Enfield um, case, there were many descriptions of this one creature, all the way from Rick Rainbow that talked about a chip, chimp-like creature that was jumping around in a barn, to the three-legged creature, to the hopping kangaroo down the the um, railroad tracks, to the uh, three-legged pink kangaroo that attacked somebody. I mean, the descriptions were multiple. And what I saw happening was the newspaper men back then started finding out about each other's story, and AP or UPI would come along, and they'd try to make it into a combined compilation of all of the accounts, and it became the Southern Illinois Ape Reports, or uh, the the Mystery Animal. In other words, the media started being the first combiner of all of the multiple reports that in which they were trying to make sense of it. And that's, you know, the, the human mind, the mundane human mind trying to make sense of it. But the other thing that would happen is I'd go into an area, and because I was open to listening to people without judgment, uh, they would tell me, oh, yeah, we also saw a black panther two years ago in that same cornfield. Or they'd tell me about, you know, a UFO that had been there uh, maybe six months ago. Or with 
then you get Rich coming in, and they'd start telling about ghost stories. So I think that um, that's what John Keel would call the reflective factor. It really reflected the fact that you're open, that you're listening, and that somebody's not so much they're trying to, um, you know, impress you or make you happy with the story. They have all of this unknown, unexplained phenomena happening around them, and nobody will talk to them about it. So it's almost a psychological relief to them that they can unburden themselves of all of these reports. So that would happen all the time. What I find um, concerning about the Enfield case is that uh, I think it was mostly Troy Taylor uh, would come along later and call it the Enfield horror and make it into a monster. It was never a monster in my day when I first investigated it. And the first, uh, I was written up as, you know, anthropology student investigating uh, ape reports in southern Illinois by one of the newspaper people that heard we were there in the infield area investigating these creatures. Now, who's to say that there are any more right in their headlines than Troy Taylor is? But by him giving it a name that has horror in it, people got this feeling it was a creature, a monster, a monstrosity. And none of us ever heard that from any of the people. They were scared. They were attacked. Uh, all of that happened. But they never felt uh, so terrified uh, that it became, you know, people on the corners with shotguns. It just, if, they was, if this creature was going to come back around, Obviously, they were going to do something about it with their firearms, but uh, it wasn't. It wasn't a matter that there was roving bands of shotgun, you know, people in their pickup trucks. Yeah, uh, they were. They were just very careful. Okay, so what I was reading also talked about that though. It said that there were these like there were hunters, scores of hunters. It actually kind of reminded me of the Minerva case, where there's like all these people scouring the woods for this thing. Was that your impression of what was going on, or was that? a bit of over-dramatization. Uh, it certainly became a sensationalized story, and it reminded me very much of uh, Farmer City, Illinois, where after the media got involved, after there got to be a lot of local stories, then carloads of teenagers, instead of going parking and smooching, they would go up and down the roads looking for the monsters. Hmm. And it, it wasn't so much that they had a lot of guns or that they were you know, gun-toting bands of people. It was really a lot of curiosity seekers. Uh, and, you know, there's not much to do in southern, that deep, deep part of southern Illinois. So it was, it became the summer thing to do. Because, you know, it happened in April, and then it, it really lasted into the summer as far as being a, a local phenomenon. And we're back. Um, <clears throat> so that was really cool of, of Lauren to come on and, and be willing to talk to us about the case, uh, especially one that he's so tied to, you know, like typically I, I'm really eager to try and get him into, if we can ever do this Enfield case as a movie, just because he was actually connected with the case. I mean, he was actually there, you know, and we had Bill in, in, um, Whitehall and we had Barbara mm -hmm. and in, in Minerva. So Lauren, right. well, he didn't say no either. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So, okay, so what are your opinions on this? Because you're like me. We're kind of just experiencing this for the first time. Yeah, it's 
My first thought is misidentification, which sounds weird because it's such a, you know, when you first hear that detail about three legs, all of a sudden, you know, it seems to put it in the category of something like a Dover demon, which bears no resemblance to anything else. But the fact that it had long claws and and left, evidently left physical marks, you know, in the door and things like that. I mean, it's got to be something, not to mention the slash marks in the kid's shoes. And something did that. I mean, I don't think the kid shredded his own shoes and then, you know, uh, went and carved on his neighbor's door. So something was going around at the time. But mm-hmm. that I guess the first thing, like I said, that comes to my mind is maybe just the fear of the moment uh, combined with the uh, imagination was making people see things. Because, you know, it, to me, it, it's pretty clearly not a a classic Bigfoot like we've talked about a number of times on this show. Yeah, no, this is a really... I mean, it's got the red eyes, which kind of runs parallel, but I think someone actually reported seeing a tail. And I think that's where that comes mm. from. And I'm trying yeah. to skim through this real quick. I don't know if you know about that. But uh, the other thing I've, I, I'm i sure I, I know Lauren mentioned it, but the other thing about this that kind of falls into that classic kind of small town category is that there's posses of people roaming oh, around yeah. trying to kill it. <laughs> uh-huh. Which is yeah. awesome. And, and that that takes on a life of its own almost in the retelling. Mm-hmm. You know, I got that from what he was saying that there was um, – you know, there were people out looking, hunting, if you will, but maybe in the retelling that becomes a bigger and bigger group of people, which is, you know, how, you know as storytelling goes, how could you shy away from that? Right. You're going to go so, off on that. So the mystery, mystery apes, I just thought this was such a cool story, and um, we've never talked about it on the show. And there's obviously fodder here to, to do. We could have done a whole show just about this, but I do want to move on mm-hmm. and get some of these other kind of cases in. Do you want to talk anything else about this particular one? Well, I think the mystery ape idea, you know, I, I did he mention the fact that he sort of coined, uh, Lauren Coleman did the term napes. Right. The North American apes. and Right. In Mysterious America has a kind of a famous picture of a uh, primate-type footprint in a, a riverbed somewhere in southern Illinois. So, you know, that is a thing. Um, and, and sort of related to that is uh, apes, primates that can swim, which seems to have been reported um, in places in and around the Ohio River Valley. So that does that does bring up a lot of food for thought, like you said. Right. And uh, there's a evidently a howler monkey running around Columbus right now. It's yeah, like, yeah, it's <laughs> the Minerva Park monster, as I'm calling it, because it was seen in Minerva Park. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Some cross promotion going on. Right. <laughs> you had a T-shirt on, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the hat. He had a hat too. He was carrying Brandon's soundtrack, actually. It's really... You wouldn't believe how much I had to pay that guy, though. Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah, he wanted... uh, 7,000 bananas. uh... (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay, bring bring it. All right, so we're talking bizarre cases, and... I have a few. I think we'll start with sort of a simple bizarre case, if there is such a thing. Mm-hmm. And a couple times tonight, I'm going to be dipping into the files of 
Stan Gordon, who, as you know, I'm uh, sort of a fan of, I guess you would say. His book, Silent Invasion, has... Um, I was looking through it again, getting ready for this show, and it's it's such a dense book in terms of just reports. It's report after report after report. And it's not all Bigfoot, obviously. There's uh, orbs, flying saucers, uh, albino, white Bigfoots, you name it. Hmm. But it's not, you know, not, it's like 301 pages of just reports on that they took and places they went to investigate. So it's just this period of time between 72 and 74 that was just highly, highly unusual in uh, Pennsylvania. And, uh, and this one... Kind of everywhere, come, too. <laughs> yeah. A no, lot right. of a lot of flaps around at that time. Absolutely. So this one comes out of uh, Beaver County, September 27th, 1973. Um, two teenage girls are standing outside. It's about 9.30 p.m. Uh, they're talking when suddenly crossing the road, running towards a wooded area, they saw a seven- to eight-foot-tall Bigfoot-like creature covered in white hair. And the thing that makes this a uh, bona fide bizarre case is that this is the one where the creature was allegedly carrying a luminescent sphere in one hand. Uh, The eyes of the creature were brownish-red. They didn't smell anything odd. But they were very shaken, as you would expect, and they ran back into their house. Um, They told their story to the father of one of the girls who owned the woods that the Bigfoot had run into. Uh, It was learned that the property owner, the father, went down into the woods a short time after the creature had been seen. Um, His daughter said he was gone for about an hour. And about that time, an object moved across the sky projecting a beam of light down into the same woods. And as the story goes, when the the man came back, he was uh, sort of a different person after that experience, acted very unusually. Um, he's quoted as saying, there are some things that shouldn't be discussed, and he didn't want anybody tramping around in his woods. And uh, this is a theme that's going to come up later in another Stan Gordon uh, report, But uh, he went from not really being interested in anything that you would classify as paranormal to becoming someone who was interested in in talking about end of times and prophecies and was making predictions about the world's going to end in six months and things like that. And that was sort of the outcome of this. Um, He would not talk about what he saw down in the woods with anyone. Mm-hmm. So that is floating, bizarre floating, case. Floating meth, meth lab. Floating meth <laughs> lab was, was what they saw. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, so, uh, the, the, so we saw a Bigfoot or in the woods? I mean, he, his, well, whatever he encountered in the woods, he refused to talk about with anyone. Okay. Um, it was just the people noticed a change in his personality after the hour that he spent. What uh, is this? Around. This is oh well. You're probably going to talk about the other one, the one with the orb. With the are you going to talk about that one? Yes. Okay. Yeah, the one. Yeah. Okay. And Good. those that um, two Bigfoot and that and other weird weird stuff. Do you own a copy of this book? 
I do. Obviously. <laughs> I don't even yes, I know. do. I don't even know why I'm asking this. <laughs> um, do you 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 own a copy of it? Do you do you know mm-hmm. is it available on like Kindle? I think it is on Kindle. It's it's definitely physical copies are on Amazon for sure. Okay. I'm going to have to read it at some point. It's like a $15, $16 book. It, it's worth it. Okay. Well, go on with your other, because I'm assuming these are all kind of related. So let's well, keep. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it in a very strange way follows a similar pattern. Um, well, and the, the book, one, the book kind of focuses on that one kind of time period, doesn't it? That flat. Yeah, it is. All, it's exclusively okay. that 72 to 74 okay. time period. It doesn't stroll out of that. Gordon has other books that, you know, come into the modern era. But sort of the one that, in some ways, I think, um, brought Stan to larger prominence in Bigfoot and paranormal UFO fields is the one that takes place near Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Same year, 73, October 25th. Um, The thing that makes this story pretty compelling and just exceedingly strange is the fact that there are people like... um, you know, state highway patrolmen involved in the investigation process. In fact, um, the trooper phoned Stan Gordon to come out and investigate because of the relationships that he was able to forge uh, over the years. And this one's pretty involved, so I'm going to try and summarize it uh, rather than read a whole lot of it verbatim. But what happens is, first, a red UFO is sighted over this uh, rural community, described as a large red sphere. Um, a, a man, a pseudonym in the book is Steve, uh, jumps in his pickup truck and takes off after it to get different views of the object, and it started to descend toward the pasture on his father's farm. So Steve and a friend of his go up to where this craft or whatever it was um, had descended animals were acting very strangely in the area dogs were really upset barking loudly there were cattle in the fields that were alternately acting very agitated and then some of them um, just sort of ignoring what was happening which was just as strange um there were some electromagnetic things going on as well, uh, headlights dimming rapidly, sort of the you know close encounters type stuff. But uh, long story short, as they got very close to where this red um, item was, their attention was drawn to a fence line about 75 feet away. They were hearing sounds that were described as a wailing baby. And walking along the barbed wire fence, which was uh, measured as six feet high, were two very tall, dark figures slowly moving toward the observers. The first thought was uh, naturally it was a bear or something along those lines, except as they kept watching, they realized the creatures were very tall, covered from head to toe in brownish-grayish hair. Uh, First of the two beasts was estimated to stand over eight feet tall. The other was seven feet tall. Um, that very, very long arms. And this detail, you know, I, I was looking at this case before tonight, and this one jumped out at me this time as being very 
bizarre in itself, but long arms hanging down to around their feet. I mean, I don't, I don't know that in a Bigfoot case I've ever really heard that necessarily. No. Um, physical trait that really drew the attention of the witnesses was bright glowing green eyes. They seemed very rigid and unnatural in their movements, and they continued that wailing sound as they proceeded onward. Um, finally, Steve loaded his gun and shot a couple uh, shots over the head of the creatures. Um, while doing that, one of the creatures, the creatures in front, raised its right arm and reached towards the tracer as if to grab it. And exactly at the same time, the huge, brilliant domed object, the red object, vanished from sight. Um, after that happened, then the creatures moved off. Steve continued to shoot at the beasts. He fired three rounds, felt certain he had hit the larger creature at least once, but there was no sign of that happening. Um, their eyes, the, the humans who were observing this, they felt their eyes start to become irritated, and Steve had been hunting for years, could not understand why the creatures had not stopped. Um, they ran off and uh, got in their pickup truck. They went to their neighbors, called the state police. Investigating officer arrived around quarter to ten. Um, Steve joined an officer. They got in the patrol car. There was a luminous ring still visible in the ground where the object had landed. The trooper uh, moved his head beam, you know, the headlight beams of the car to make sure that the glowing was not being caused by some reflection, and it wasn't. And I remember Stan Gordon saying in a presentation that the state trooper said it was bright enough that you could read a newspaper by it, um, that residual glow. And according to Steve, this is what happened next. Um, the men heard something ahead of them. As the trooper shined his flashlight, the beam struck what appeared to be the larger of the two hairy creatures about 10 feet away. Fired directly at the creature, which seemed to rock back and forth as though losing its balance. It then charged toward them, hitting the fence that was between the men and the creature. When the trooper and Steve uh, got back to their car, they booked it out of there, went back to... Um, the State Highway Patrol headquarters, that's when Stan Gordon was contacted by phone and came out that same night, and it was about, it was well after midnight by the time they got there. It was about 1.45, um, 2 a.m. when uh, George Lutz, who was a, a co-investigator with Stan, were actually out there along the fence line where the creatures had been walking. Um, they did find that part of the barbed wire fence was broken where allegedly the creature had rushed at them. But the really weird twist in this tale is that then Steve proceeds to have um, some sort of strange experience where he begins growling like an animal. He throws two men to the ground. Ultimately, he collapses himself face down in this field, and all the investigators are, are understandably shaken by what's happening. Uh, later on, in subsequent investigation uh, interviews, Steve would say that he had a vision of a figure in black who was talking about end-time stuff, and Steve claimed to not be 
religious or even paranormally inclined before this happened to him, and afterwards it seemed like his life was marked with just weird sort of that that strange brew of 1970s paranormal stuff going on, uh, ESP, um, Drugs. just strange premonitions, things like that. And he even reported that a couple weeks after this took place, um, alleged visitors from the government came, talked to him about his experience, showed him pictorial evidence of Bigfoot, and Steve thought it was people that Stan Gordon knew that he had sent to talk to him, and it was not. And Stan disavows any knowledge of who those guys were. So this really becomes, it goes from strange to really strange to just, yeah, bizarre. Is is there, there's like military bases close, close to there, aren't there? Uh, I don't know. I believe, uh, I believe there be. are. I could be mm-hmm. wrong, but I think there there either are or there were. I just wonder, I wonder what the odds are that some of this was, some of the UFOs were, you know, some sort of test flights and um, how much of this could be chalked up to some sort of psychological experiment being conducted mm-hmm. by the, by the mm-hmm. government on people in the Chestnut Ridge. It's just mm-hmm. such a bizarre, like, it's easy for me to make jokes about, like, meth and everything, and I realize that there is a large meth culture in... PA and Ohio and all over the place, really. But um, I don't know how much you can actually chalk up. Ma- I mean, there's massive amounts of these reports during that that amount, you know, that mm-hmm. period of time. So it becomes hard to like come up with what you know rational explanations for things. Right. It would but not you... stop me from doing that. But. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, the thing that you made me think of just now is that, and other people have thought this before, certainly. That maybe there was some come you know some type of psychological stuff going on and tests being done and it was almost a Pandora's box type situation where mm-hmm. the stuff worked too well, <laughs> yeah, so well on people that you know they it was hard to estimate what they had were causing people to perceive. Has not, it? not that I think that they you know opened a portal and stuff came walking through it, but whatever they. Uh, whatever they enabled unlocked in people's heads in order to see this stuff um, maybe work too well. Well, hasn't it been theorized that there is, or not theorized, but haven't people said that th- that, that might have been what was behind the, the Flatwoods case too? Mm-hmm. I think I've heard that. Mm-hmm. And I love the yeah. Flatwoods case. But All right. Do you have any more of these Chestnut Ridge ones? Um, well, no, I, I think though that that one in particular is sort of the um, epitome of mm-hmm. the silent invasion. It really is the kind of the centerpiece of the book because it is so strange, yeah. and um, and the fact that uh, Stan was sort of boots on the ground on that one, and it's it has the um, you know the pride of place of he actually was there and witnessed. Not the creatures, but Steve's reaction to them, and it it he um, very candidly says how unsettling it was to be a part of that process. Um, my other case, I only have one other one. Of course, we're running low on time anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, 
I I have this one, and I think we talked a little bit about it on the show, but it's the it's it's actually three cases in one, and that's what I think makes it unusual. Um, I know of other <clears throat> cases around the country where you know someone has a sighting of something and then it blooms into a flap, but I don't know of of a, a kind of a triumvirate of creatures in one location that may or may not be. Um, based in well this is an interesting one because i actually had three theories on what what took place here but we've talked about the charles mill lake monster before and i know we've talked about old orange eyes and i think i've mentioned big head on the show oh gosh yes so i want to talk about these three because they all took place within probably i'd say a half hour tops of each other but it, it's probably i mean i know charles mill lake and where old orange eyes was said to Rome are in the same place i mean charles mill lake and um, was was in one of the haunts of the old Orange Eyes legends. Now, you and I have talked about old Orange Eyes, which I think we kind of believe to be more of a folk tale or an urban mm-hmm. legend than anything. Not to say it's not; it might not be based in some sort of reality, but there's this. Basically, the old Orange Eyes is is that stories go that there was this. Um, what was it? This thing lived in some sort of tunnel in Cleveland, yeah. Ohio, which is right. like two hours north of where all of this takes place. I'm not sure where they came up with that. Yeah. Uh, it's like his origin story. Yeah. He's way, got an right? origin I mean... story. <laughs> yeah. He's like he's living in this tunnel and then he gets disturbed by some some workers or something and he leaves. He packs his bags and he heads down to um, <laughs> to basically right near the Mohican Forest, which is kind of yeah. cool because... We've got a lot of Bigfoot reports from this area. It's in fact Charles Mill Lake was I just found this out. Let me see if I can read this. Yes. Okay. Nestled in between Cleveland and Columbus, the Mill Lake Reservoir was constructed in nineteen thirty five by damming the Black Fork of the Mohican River. So I think that hmm. is pretty darn cool because we know there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the Mohican uh state park or national forest. Um and I've been in there. I've gone Bigfooting in there. I've talked to people who've seen Bigfoot in there. So, so it's an area where there's a lot of Bigfoot reports. Um, but the Charles Mill Lake creature is a really cool story that happened in March of '59. Uh, um, th- these three kids—I'm not sure how old. This says teenage buddies, but I think they were younger than that. I think they were like 11 and 12 or something like that. They basically claimed to see. Um, a seven-foot-tall being with no arms, amphibious is kind of how they described it, come up out of the water and then uh, approach them. Um, they re- they said that it had large webbed feet, and uh, they went home and reported it to their parents, and, and their parents called the police, and the cops showed up, and they did find tracks. In fact, um, I was able to locate a newspaper article about this story, and there is a photo of the tracks on the front of the paper. What's really weird is the story dies. This is that's it. There's one. There's one story about this, and it's g- gone. Um, I was unable to track down any of these kids: uh, Denny Patterson, Wayne Armstrong, Michael Lane, from Ohio. So, if anyone in that area wants to get a hold of me, I would love to know more about the story and do a little bit of follow up on it. But um. But so so this all took place. The Charles Mill Lake creature is seen in the same spot where these sort of orange, old orange eyes stories are sort of, you know, being repeated. And I think I did manage to track down one newspaper article that that uh, referenced old orange eyes 
that was uh, out of the Mansfield or Ashland Fairgrounds area. Mm-hmm. It was like at the at the fairgrounds. Someone had had a sighting, and it had something to do with a horse. I want to say that this old orange eyes was ch- chasing a horse or something. Like there's something wow. some weird thing to it. But I couldn't find the article today when I was trying to track it down. So, uh-huh. but of course, at the center of all this is a very real. Um, well, as real, you know, more real than what I consider old orange eyes to be, which really does seem to be an urban legend um, with this kind of, you know, kind of origin story and all this. But at the center mm-hmm. of all this, there is the story of Big Head and Big Head. This this is a case that really reminded me of the Minerva case. It's a small town sighting. It took place in a tiny town closer to Mansfield. Um, but let me see if I can dig up a little bit of the info on this. I actually pulled up the BFRO article, but I should say this is because I get in trouble sometimes when I mention that I'm reading stuff off their site. This is a report by Ron Schaffner who actually sent me this report. So Schaffner investigated this just like he did the Minerva case. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> basically a family in this town uh, in Richland County, re- 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 um, sorry, cheese. They reported, that's the word I'm looking for. I'm like doing six things at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Klein family, they reported seeing um, an upright walking hair covered creature with a massive head, seven foot tall, massive head and large red eyes in the backyard of their house. Um, they saw, or not in the backyard of the house, they saw it walking along a railroad tracks and the railroad tracks kind of come back into play a couple times. Uh, the boys panic and they, they run back home and... Um, but one of the boys, there were three boys, they're walking along the railroad tracks. They see this creature walking down the tracks. They run home. One of the boys couldn't move. Um, Eugene, he was locked in place. I'm not sure if this is, yeah, Eugene Klein and his buddy Ken O'Neill, they were 17. They see this creature. The one boy can't move, Eugene. They go home. They report it to their dad. Their dad calls the cops, and uh, the cops check the area, couldn't find anything. Um, the next day, uh, some kids that were out driving around claimed they had seen uh, the same type of creature at a railroad crossing again. Um, they reported that a huge black apparition with red eyes was in a slumped position by the tracks. Authorities were impressed because all stories matched while being interviewed separately. So it was like four people they were interviewed and all their stories lined up. Mm-hmm. Um uh, the next day, the creature shows up again, this time on the client's property. Um, Teresa and her father, Roger, were pitching hay from their barn. A slow freight train was heading eastbound. The train began to sound its horn at long and short intervals. Roger went back to the house while Teresa decided that she wanted to see why the train kept blowing the horn. She had not gone far when she saw a silhouette with two glowing eyes. It emitted a foul odor and a high-pitched scream. Teresa threw her flashlight at it and ran. Hmm. And it kind of... It kind of dies off there. Um, Ron went and investigated it, and he he did tell me his opinions, like his personal opinions on the case. He thought everyone was very honest. Um, This is a weird story, though, because, like, I tried to make this into a movie. Uh, I wanted to do a movie on these three sightings, and that's why I lumped this in with the bizarre cases, is you've got what, what appears to me to be three different situations going on. The Charles Mill Lake Monster, to me, sounds like a hoax. Um, probably a kid playing a prank on these kids. Cause what the, what the police said about the tracks is that they seemed like webbed flippers. 
So I'm thinking it was probably a guy in a wetsuit playing a prank on some kids. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 old orange eyes really does appear to just be an urban legend or folk tale. Um, I don't know where you know the old orange eyes thing is connected with Bigfoot in general, obviously. So that could have been where it originated. There, that's why I say there might have been an actual sighting that was kind of at the root of this. But then this this case, the big head sightings. They they do seem to have some sort of physical reality. It seems to be that that, that there was something going on here. Now it could have been uh, a hoax or a misidentification of something like a black bear. But the orange eyes um, are very unusual. Obviously, uh, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't. These are older reports. It doesn't re- refer to them as um, glowing from the inside or anything. It just says they were orange eyes. So mm-hmm. um, the case is odd in that. When I tried to cover it, there's no one I can talk to. I couldn't track down anyone from the Charles Mill Lake case. I couldn't track down uh, the clients. I did track down the clients. I spoke to the family. I spoke to the mother. Uh, the father's since passed away, but Eugene wants nothing to do with it. So it's kind of from what I talked to him about, or from what I talked to the mother about, it's kind of haunted him his whole life, uh, which mm-hmm. we hear over and over. Um, right. But he doesn't want anything to do with it. It was a case of mockery for him. He got made fun of. And the other boy that was with him passed away last year. Hmm. So um, I lump that one into the bizarre case because even though it's not, you know, something whacked out um, or even anything like the Enfield case, it's more of a I just find it odd that you've got these three, you know, these three cases kind of converging here in this one spot around that Charles Mill Lake Mansfield area. So the thing that's compelling about Big Head is, you know, you've got this family that's involved and multiple sightings. I just think that's, you know, if it is a a flesh and blood creature that then it doesn't seem like he was straying very far for a little while. Yeah. Um, And, and I should mention it July 16th, 1978. So this is, um, uh, weeks, weeks from the, uh, Minerva case. Oh yeah. Huh? Summer of 78. Yeah. A lot of sightings in Ohio during that year. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also the year we had the weird UFO flap slash Bigfoot uh, flap down in southern Ohio near Wayne National Forest. I might be mistaken. If someone is listening and they know better, you can correct me. But I think that's what I've heard. So we need to wrap this up. But these are obviously we're only scratching the surface. We went through like three sighting reports here. So. Mm-hmm. So there's there's way more of these, and uh, I have fun researching these because cause I, I like like you know Lauren talking about what he thinks could be behind it with the you know the ape like creatures with the Enfield case. I find that just as fascinating as like UFOs um, and Bigfoots. I just I think there's so many different angles to the subject. Every mm-hmm. time you think you've explored everything, something like the Enfield horror pops up. Right. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and it's also interesting to see how different researchers deal with the all of the questions that are involved. You know, because in in Lauren Coleman's case, you know, I know his his earliest writings. Um, you know, he has titles like um, oh, "Creatures from the Outer Edge" and uh, "The Goblin Universe." I think was a, in one of his early books titles. And he kind of has moved, tracing the arc of his writing from exploring ideas about a unified theory of weirdness 
to the point where now he strikes me as someone who is much more, uh, you know, flesh and blood or case by case scenario, um, really making an effort to look at this as, you know, from a material perspective. Um, then you have guys like uh, Stan Gordon, who just let the questions hang, and he he doesn't suggest anything about what he thinks is going on, really. And then, um, like uh, in the case of Tom Powell, his latest book, and there's a very a, a exceedingly strange case that we'll have to talk talk about another time in his latest book, Edges of Science. But he's gone in sort of the opposite direction as Coleman, to my mind. I mean, he's not that he was a strict materialist to begin with, but the th- ideas that he is expounding in Edges of Science are kind of where Coleman started out. So it's it's very, very intriguing for me to see how, you know, as you work on these cases and as you think about them and uh, listen to people talk about what they went through, we're really, we really are trying to figure out, you know, what is actually going on, and it just seems like the answers are just always out of reach, you know, just out of your fingertips, and no one has succeeded in uh, grabbing onto it quite yet. (laughs) 